Well, hello, and welcome to this Dean's Dialogue. Thank you for taking time to come out. We weren't sure what kind of crowd to expect this close to Thanksgiving, but, but this should be, this should be a, a fun conversation. Now, introducing deans is always a difficult task because they can either go on for 30 minutes or five seconds. So I've chosen the five-second option, and, and I hope you'll forgive me for that. Both of these uh, uh, men before us are very accomplished people. Probably one of the most important things to say about them is they both have extraordinary imagination. They're able to see what is and imagine what can be. And that's one of the privileges of being able to sit in on a conversation between such people so that we can hear them conversing with each other and then at the end of the dialogue we'll have a chance for about 15 minutes to join into that conversation. So as, as, as Dean Blair Shepard, uh, Dean of Fuqua School of Business, and uh, Dean Sam Wells, Dean of Duke Chapel, have this conversation about living lives of consequence, I encourage you, as they say things that may trigger your imagination, to jot down any questions you might have, and at the end of the conversation, we'll have a microphone and, and a chance for you to voice those questions as well. So without further ado, uh, Dean Sam Wells and Dean Blair Shepard. Well, Blair, I've, I've lived in this country um, getting on for, I think, three and a half years now. And my understanding of how the country works is that we, we keep legislation and taxation as small as possible. We allow people a lot of freedom to make lots of money. And then when they get to the age of about 55, if they've done that successfully, they do one of two things. They either decide to give something back or they set up a foundation because there's more money than they know what to do with. They plow that back into the non-profit sector and the non-profit sector does all the things that you can't do if you're worried about the bottom line. Uh, and, and it all works. And we're the finest country the world has ever seen. Would, is that how it works? <laughs> <laughs> Of course, of course. But you don't come from this country, either. Yeah, I don't so come I from this country. I've been, but I've been here. I've been here 28 years. So I'm now a citizen. Um, they actually, Martha's theory is that I wasn't allowed to become a citizen in August of before the last election because they thought they knew how I would vote. So <laughs> um, it, it's it's the concept of how it works in a stylized form. It's not clear it works. In, uh, in two senses. First is um, we've actually seen ways in which the inappropriate determination of that model causes chaos in markets. Right. So when, when you, if you're actually going to create that model, you actually have to make sure that you manage it such that it sort of behaves in the right way. Right? And I don't think we did that all that well the last few years. Um, and, uh, um, and, and so the, the, the problem is that, that that then creates perturbances in the system that actually overwhelm the sort of the generosity requisites in the system, right? So, so that there's just not enough, and, and what's intriguing in it is just at the time in which you need money is when people are least likely to give it, right? Because now there's a whole bunch of people who are now traumatized who actually need assistance and there's fewer people with the pockets to actually do something about it. So, so I think in the best of times, it works okay. In the worst of times, it's ill-suited to task. So, um, you would you would imagine that most of your graduates from the business school would go out and, in a sense, 
follow fairly conventional career, career patterns to either set up their own business in due course or to become a senior executive in a, in a major company um, and, and would get to that sort of threshold of around late 40s or something and then say, um, well, I guess this is what I do, isn't it? So I'll go on doing this indefinitely as long as someone will employ me or I can make money. Or, or, or would you expect them to build in something different from, from the very beginning that made people look around and say, well, that's a, that's a Duke Business School, that's a Fuqua gra graduate. They, you wouldn't expect them just to think about things in terms of the bottom line. So that's both an empirical question and an intention question. Right? Let me it is. The empirical answer. Empirically, that's less and less true of our students. So a significantly large percentage of our students are trying to figure out how to connect their social motives with their organizational motives or their business motives. Um, you know, for example, Net Impact, I think, has uh, more than one whole class now member of the club where when I left in 2000, it was about 48 people, right? So that's order of magnitude. Do you, do you say 10x. What, what, what ten, net, ten times, ten times. Oh, net, oh, net Impact is the, is the club and the school that actually worries about sort of using business capability to solve social issues, right? Um, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a national society and we are probably the most successful club in the nation, right? So our uh, Center for Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship, um, we're overwhelming the capacity of that center because the number of kids who actually want to connect um, business, business logic to social issues, right? Um, and so I think the answer empirically is that is less and less true a description of our students, right? Um, the other one is sort of there's a, is intention. Um, if you go back to the model you articulated, right? That model works especially well when people actually believe that commerce and society need to connect to each other well. Um, in cases where we say, go make money and do so in a way that's completely inconsiderate of its impact on the society that you're a part of, um, which is an ethos that some places espouse fairly definitively, um, versus a place that says actually um, business and society are inextricably bound with each other, so actually think about the social consequences of what you do as you're running and managing your business. Um, that the model you articulate in the first instance works better in that world because essentially the, the amount of ill you have to undo or the amount of problem you have to solve is, is, is significantly smaller here than it is here. I think there's a tension in the U.S. between those two models, and I think you'd find our school closer to this end of that continuum, but we have students distributed across the entire continuum. Um, and that's a good thing, by the way. It's not a bad thing. Okay, I'm, I'm thinking of a friend of mine who is um, about 44. He, um, he was involved with some, some things that used to go on in California that used to make a lot of money. And he sold up at just the right time, and he retired at 37. Uh, and he doesn't really know quite what to do with himself now. <laughs> because he, he did go to business school, he did make a lot of money, uh, and he, he isn't quite sure what else there is. He can more than provide for his family and their descendants for his extended family and pay his parents through nursing care and so on and he owns seven Land Rovers. And I'm just interested in what your advice would be to him. <laughs> so, 
you know, I have a close colleague who was describing how terrible his life is because he had to sell four houses, right? He only has three left, and uh, his golf course is now gone, and so it was, um, uh, and I think the first advice is actually you've got to be, th you have to be thoughtful about how you keep score, right? I mean, so, so um, one of the most significant experience in my life was when um, my mother uh, was dying of cancer. And uh, we went up to, I, I went to go visit her in Hamilton. I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario. Was, uh, and she was at home in the house that I had grown up in. And I went to visit her. My dad called and said, you probably ought to get up because she doesn't have long to live. So I went up three days before she died. And um, I got the tickets all set. And my eldest son said, I want to go. And I said, you're crazy. You don't want to go. You're going to see your gammy in a way. You don't want to see her. It's just not a good thing. And, and he said, no, no, I want to go. So. We rearranged tickets, we, um, we landed in Buffalo, we drove to Hamilton, um, we got to the house, and we come into the house, and I said, well, let's go upstairs. He said, I'm not going. I said, what do you mean you're not going? He said, we came all this way. I just spent a huge amount of money for you to come up here. What do you mean you're not going? He said, I'm not going. So I go up to visit her, and about come back down and say, are you ready now? And he said, yeah, I'm ready now. And apparently what he'd done is talk to my dad about um, sort of how she was going to be, because he, he wanted to be steeled for seeing her. Um, goes upstairs, walks into her bedroom, and she's sucking on oxygen and then talking to him and sucking on oxygen. And he says, so Gammy, I have a question. She said, what's that? And he said, so how, how did you do? How well did you do? How good did you do? Right? Not well. His grammar was wrong. Um, and uh, she was really stunned by the question because no one had actually ever asked, hadn't asked her that question. So, so um, she said, well, actually, I don't know. He said, okay, so I have a different question for you. He said, how would you know how good you did, right? And what then happened was this really wonderful exchange between a grandmother and a grandson. He had her hair color, so he was a preferred of the grandchildren. And she just sort of unloaded her life on him in the context of sort of saying, let me sort of give you the whole story and then help you figure out what it is, what the criteria are you should use, right? I think the first piece of advice is, is remember is put yourself in her shoes every once in a while and ask yourself that question as I at intermediate points in your life because you're much less likely to find yourself in the circumstances than if you actually use that as a criterion. Right? You sort of do this retrospective view back on life. You'll end up taking choices that you won't be stuck at moments in time and say, what do I do now? You're just less likely to do it. So I think he shouldn't have got himself in that place in the first place. Right. Um, second is rediscover your dreams. Right? Um, I think one of the things we do try to do here, and we do it imperfectly, by the way, but we do try to do here is connect people to the things they care about most. And say, whatever you do when you graduate from Fuqua, make sure you don't lose a connection to those things you care about most. Right? Um, I, I find it impossible to believe the thing he cares about most is money. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's a good thing, by the way. Rather have it than not, um, and I'd rather our alums have it than not because if they have it, they're likely to give it to us, right? Um, <laughs> and then we can put it to a better need. But um, but but it shouldn't be the end in itself. It should never be the end in itself. Um, what what people here probably don't know is that um, the the title for this series 
uh, Living Lives of Consequence for this year's Dean's Dialogue series actually came from you. It came out of a conversation I had with you about a year ago. Um, and I, I guess uh, as, as I'm talking with the deans, obviously the, the question that I'm coming round to is what is, what is a life of consequence? Uh, we've talked a little bit on the social and the institutional and the personal level, and I guess it has to include all of those on some level. Um, what, what would mark out a life of consequence? I guess, what would it mean for, you, for me to ask you in 30 years' time, did you do good? It's really good. So, so first of all, I think you've got to be, you have to be careful about life of consequence because I think everybody's life is consequential mm -hmm. in some way, right? So, so it, in, it, it sort of, it, to sort of imply that people aren't means you're imposing your standard on them, and I, mm -hmm. I just think that's wrong, especially as educators. We just shouldn't impose our standard on them. Um, but I do think it has some components. And so we had this notion at Fuqua we call leader of consequence. It's actually not my phrase. I wish I'd coined it, right? But it's actually in our mission statement. It goes back to 1984. The final phrase says, and we do all of this for the purpose of creating leaders of consequence. Right? I think what's, what's wonderful about that as a phrase is it forces you to step back and ask the question you just asked, which is, all right, what does it mean to be consequential in the good sense? Right? Um, uh, and, and so let me add, answer it generically, and then I'll try to answer it personally. I think generically, a consequential life means that the traces you left are positive in the way you'd like them to have been. Right? So that if you touch a person, that person is affected in the way you'd like them to have been affected. If you built an organization, that organization is successful in the way you'd like it to have been successful. If you, so, so that the so that in a sense consequential is, is, is that there is a value judgment being made by someone, and preferably the person who's making a judgment, and that, um, and that actually the traces look like you, had, you would wish they had looked. Right? Um, so when I, you know, if, I, if I try to answer that personally, um, uh, I'd, I'd give three answers, I think. The first is I believe that education done right is an unbelievably important element of what makes humanity work effectively. And that one of the measures for me would be that education in the world is better because I was here. And I can be quite articulate about what better means, which you've already heard that in other places. Um, second is that um, the people I knew and touched um, had a better life because I was here. Right? Um, and the third is that I was a uh, in particular, a good father and a good husband. Right. Um, and that's enough. Hmm. So thinking for, from my, from my bailiwick, if, if you like, uh, one story which is, has dominated, I think, a lot of uh, Christians who are involved in, in business is the parable of the talents. This idea that, that Three servants are given different amounts of, amounts of money. They're told to go off and spend them, and the ones who went off and spent them well are rewarded for doing so, but the one who was anxious and feared that they wouldn't get it right and perhaps didn't want to destroy the environment, didn't want to 
uh, oppress their workforce or whatever it might be and actually kept the same amount they started off with uh, was not well rewarded on the return of the master. Um, I, I know, uh, I think almost all the, the Christians that I know who are, um, have spent a lifetime in business, this has been a very significant story for them. There's, there's almost a sense that they have been given much and much will be expected from them. But I'm also aware of how much pressure that can put on people. Uh, you know, Duke is a, is a place where there are many people who work perhaps a little bit harder than they might. But there's something about the business person who works all hours because they have to, otherwise they won't be able to pay their staff at the end of the week. That is a, almost a, a defining figure in our culture. Would, would you agree with that? And what does it mean in the light of the values that you were just articulating to have that, that drivenness, that sense, that drivenness, not necessarily to be the center of attention, but that drivenness to, to feel one, no one could ever say to you, you didn't make the most of the opportunities you had. So, um, I mean, I, I, think that, I think the danger of any one of the, any one of the parables alone is that you actually missed all of them. And uh, and so, um, and you pick the one that sort of justifies the choices you've made, right? Um, so, so in part, the issue is the danger is if you say, "I exist purely to make sure that the resources I were given are larger than as a consequence as a consequence of my being here," right? Um, you can fall into all sorts of fairly unhappy traps, right? So one of the traps we fell into in the last five years is. We actually aren't counting all the resources right, right? So as we're growing, because you have a narrow lens, as we're growing one set of resources tremendously well, we're also depleting others that actually, in some ways, we don't really want to deplete very much, right? And so, so I think one of the dangers in uh, in in applying any one any one parable and take that one in particular, is that you actually apply it with such a narrow lens, you actually do greater harm than you did good as a consequence of the lens you had, right? And so I think one of the requirements of today, of being consequential today, that's different than probably being consequential 100 years ago, 200 years ago, although on certain islands it was true there too, is that you actually have to understand interdependence much better. You actually have to know the unintended consequences of your behavior on other people much better than you did. And you have to know the ways in which your assumptions are both not universal and flawed and therefore likely to cause issues that you couldn't have anticipated if you didn't broaden your assumption set. And, and so I think the danger of uh, sort of uh, continually improve the resource base is that that, in an obsessive way, actually may make the world worse, not better. Right. Um, and so you need to, you need to curb it. Right. I don't mean curb it in the sense of you need to stop it, because I think, yeah, I think, I think well-directed ambition is a really good thing. I think it's a bad thing, um, it, because we're trying to create it here. Right? But well-directed ambition that is actually conscious of the collateral consequences of that ambition is much more valuable than ambition that isn't conscious of that. Right? You, you can see repeated examples of people who actually pursued that proposition with a vigor completely oblivious to what they were doing to resources immediately adjacent to them. So, trust in the marketplace. You know, we destroy trust in the marketplace. Um, 
the, uh, the, the level of heat in the world, right? There's a whole series of things we've done where we haven't anticipated that. And, I, and, and so the only point is, if you're gonna read the thing, read the whole thing, not just one phrase. What, um, what would you say to uh, a person who, uh, I guess Rockefeller might be a, a, an example of a person who, who wasn't really that bothered what people thought of him, but uh, found that he was getting so many requests for, for money from people that he had to employ somebody to deal with those requests because he couldn't bear this hard-earned money being thrown around. Uh, and, and yet he had to get these people off his tail because most of his correspondence wasn't about his business, it was about his wealth. Um, and so he, he, I guess, he to me epitomizes the powerlessness of the wealthy because to be wealthy is to assume that because one has been effective in one's means of making that wealth, one can be just as effective. Uh, I, I suppose one can be as effective as a wealthy person as one's been as a business person. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. If you could reflect on that a little bit. So first piece is you ought to be thoughtful about how you made the money in the first place, right? So, um, so, so if, if you're asking the question of, you know, did I do good? son's bad grammar. Um, I think you, you ought to analyze it in the first order. You, don't, you shouldn't analyze it in terms of, did I buy good later? Mm -hmm. right? Because it just strikes me that that actually permits you an out that you shouldn't permit yourself. Right? Um, so at one level, if, if Rockefeller sort of at the end of every day sat down and said, I'm, I'm quite happy with the, the traces I've left in the world as I've gotten wealthy, then I don't care. I mean, I'm, I'm delighted that wealth got him to get there. Um, and, and, and we're asking the wrong question of them, which is how are you going to distribute the wealth that you now have versus how did you make the wealth in the first place? Mm -hmm. right. um, now, that said, having gotten to that point, um, I, I think we, you see an interesting thing, actually, with most of the people who are now wealthy actually want greater influence on how the money gets spent than previous generations. And the belief is they're actually better at spending that money than the agencies are, right? I think there's some merit to that in the following sense, right? Um, if, you, if anyone hasn't read White Man's Burden, they should. Um, because part of what happens is, and this is I think part of what happened with Rockefeller and his wealth, is that essentially people with lots of resources now create great plans. And those plans are inconsiderate of the local circumstances to which they're applied. And so we have this image of, you know, so, so, so let's go raise a ton of money and, um, and eradicate poverty in Africa. You know, we've thrown an awful lot of money at poverty in Africa and all we've done is make it worse, right? And the reason we've made it worse is essentially a whole series of people n not living in Africa have made a series of judgments about what they need, right? Um, that are relatively abstract and um, and based on an experience base that has no correspondence to the nature of the need that exists, and then port the set of ideas to a place that actually needs a whole ton of, I mean, a ton of really quite clever experiments that entails most of the people who were purportedly trying to help, right? 
And I think sort of one of the dangers of what happened with Rockefeller and much of his money is actually people with plans, with grand plans, spent the money rather than people who actually had sort of smart entrepreneurial ideas of what we could do with it. Now, I have no idea how you could take the amount of wealth he had at the time and actually bring that to bear in, an entre in a more entrepreneurial way in the local circumstances where the need really was. Mm -hmm. So I think what he did at one level, and I think what Carnegie did at one level is actually right, which is, I don't know how to do that, so let's build some great institutions to prepare people who do know how to do that. Right? I think that form of philanthropy, which was about building leadership capability in the world and people of consequence, was pretty smart philanthropy mm -hmm. because it actually had the, it had the result of doing what I said needed to happen, which is create a whole bunch of entrepreneurially minded people who had some social interest who actually went out and did something with it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I think his dollar went a long way there. Uh, to ask a perhaps a slightly more provocative question, um, I mean, those of you who don't know the book White Man's Burden, it's pretty much as Blair has suggested, it's, a, it, it's about the difference between those who go in with grand plans and those who listen, basically, to, yeah, exactly, to, exactly. to uh, uh, but it takes listen about, and engage. It takes about 300 pages to say it, which is which are well <laughs> worth reading. But um, um, it wouldn't have been a book if it hadn't been exactly. pages. Yeah. Uh, but to be provocative, one could say that, um, that this university is living out that story in relation to its city. I think that's a fair observation. Could, could you reflect on that? It's yeah. certainly an observation that's often made. Um, it, it's complicated. So part of what you have to do is understand the history of the university in that sense. I don't know this well, but, but when we were formed, we were partly formed as a social welfare function, right? So we created a whole series of human resource policies which were largely meant to employ people at low salaries, right? But employ a lot of people, okay? Um, something like what we're about to start, I think. Um, and, and at the time, if you think about when we were built, right, we were built during the Depression. At the time, it was actually a pretty good um, concept, right? But what you had was a certain amount of uh, she who is wealthy, right, redistributes a certain percentage of that wealth to people, but I'm never going to let them touch each other and talk to each other and I'm going to keep them separated from each other. So one of the sort of nastiest phrases about Duke is we are a plantation. I think that mentality was actually well intended at the time, in the 30s. But, you know, we aren't in the 30s. We, we don't have a depression. And we actually have a, we have a population of people in the city who would like to thrive and be successful. And, and so part of it is there's a, there's, you know, the consequence of history is if you don't know your history, you can't actually undo it. And so we need to understand what it is the university, first point. Second point, I think, is um, we are an institution that's trying to understand the world and in so doing, isolate ourselves from our local community. And the risk is we forget that local community is the world. That, that, that somehow we forget that all the sort of delightful things we're thinking about in, 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 in India um, also happen to exist in our own town. And I think the third point is I worry that generally the most competent students in U.S. society are isolated from the society they're a part of. That in a sense we are and therefore what we end up doing without intent is create people who are mo more parochial and self-absorbed than we should. I worry about that. And I think that in a sense the, 
the job of an institution that you can't be consequential if you are parochial and self-absorbed. I mean, it's just, I mean, you can, but it's a lot harder than if you're, if you're sort of aware of the world and you are aware of yourself, you're confident and you're ambitious and all those pieces, but you're not self-absorbed, right? And, and, and so I think we aren't doing well by our students. Um, and as a result, therefore, I think they are less good citizens of the city than they could be. That's our fault, not theirs. Uh, I guess I, I'd, I'd almost compare it, again, from a church perspective, which is obviously what I know best, to, to two kinds of churches. Uh, churches which are, are uh, largely made up of people for whom that church isn't actually the center of their lives, but they, they're part of it on a Sunday, least they always say to the pastor I'll see you on a Sunday so they think of themselves as being part of it on a Sunday um, and but actually they they they're, they're missionaries I mean in the sense that they spend their lives in the world mm -hmm. and then there are churches which are always having potluck suppers and you know around each other's houses all the time and share washing machines and and and, and do lots of good sort of things that make them great communities but, uh, but, but actually, if you speak to someone two streets away, they wouldn't know they were there because they've never met anybody from that community. Community separated from the community at large, yeah. And, and, and in a sense, that, but, but there is something wonderful about the second kind because that's a wonderful community. You get love, you get fellowship, you get warmth, you get appreciated. People from different backgrounds can join it and feel that they're all equal and that sort of thing. And Duke, Duke can be a wonderful place that can... Uh, be a wonderful undergraduate experience, shall we say, a mm -hmm. wonderful graduate experience for people who are here and might actually never know anything about the life outside the, the wonderland. Yeah. Um, but to, and, and possibly have much warmer, richer associations with the university and therefore become very generous donors in later life because they had such a great time in their athletics and they had a great, such a great time with their academics and so on. But the first kind is a very different kind of institution where Duke certainly provides academic services, as it were, but it's sort of pushing its people to be in, in the world, or in this case, in, in Durham, much more. It's a more diffuse kind of institutional model. So two points about that. First, I think that Duke is actually a national and international asset, not just a local asset. And so there will always be a tension about which community do you care about. Um, uh, second, I don't like choice. Right. I mean, I, I think the job of designers of institutions is to actually reconcile that, that tension. I mean, all great institutions have tensions. Right. So a tension that says, we create a place where you have a unique experience at Duke like you can have no other, doesn't have to be opposed to an experience that says you are um, participating in the community in a larger sense. Those two don't have to be independent of each other. Um, uh, and in fact, the, the architects of the university need to think about how to do those two simultaneously. Because if we don't, we're, we're, not, we're, we're not creating the place that a kid should be. Mm -hmm. right? um, so, so I don't accept the choice. I think it's a function of and. Sure, but I mean, let me, let me make personalize it in a way, not on you, but on um, a kind of personality that my, my guess is everybody in this room will know, which is the... Um, the person that has great ability in business, not necessarily the star of the class, but the person who, who tries hard yes. and works all the time, whose family know all about how much they work, um, but they don't know them too well. They just know they're always 
working. They perhaps, shall we say, they set up a family business, and then that, so, so the, the family becomes absorbed into that kind of way. And then they get to a certain age, and they realize they're not going to be here forever. And, and, they, and they reach a kind of threshold saying, uh, we must somehow pass this on. But they simply don't have the skills in passing on <laughs> that they had in building up. I'm guessing everybody knows, knows this person, either in their own families or in, uh, you know, in their circle of acquaintance. Um, how is there some? I mean, it, obviously, we, we want the and. Yes. We want this marvelously rounded personality, who who all the time, while they while they're building things up from scratch, all the time is is, is capacity building with their wider family and their everyone who comes into contact with them feels touched by their you know their ability to pass on their wisdom and allow people to take risks and so on. But I, I just haven't met quite as many of those people as I've met the first kind of people. So, so, so a couple of pieces. I was making an institutional observation, not a personal observation, right? right? So, so um, and I think that, uh, so, so, so I, I think institutions need to be more multifaceted and more complex than mm -hmm. people, um, than the people who compose them. And therefore, if you're a leader of an institution that happens to be of one variety, you should surround yourself with people who aren't like you, right? So that you actually get a better, and, and therefore, the tension is harder to resolve in a human being. It's harder to create, I guess, in a human being than it is in an institution, because human beings are what they are, right? But I get back to my earlier point, which is, if you spend your time thinking about the thing you're building while you build it, you wouldn't have had that problem by the time you got there, right? So if you essentially said, I have to build a thing which is sustainable after I'm gone, and that's one of the criteria you give yourself, which is what any good business person would do. If the thing is worth building, it's worth sustaining. Except I shouldn't say that. There are things that should build and go away. But of the kind that you're describing, yeah. if there's a thing that's worth committing your life in the way that person commits your life to, it's worth sustaining, or else it was a purely selfish act. And is that one of the greatest arguments for institutions, is that they, are, they sustain personal vision by surrounding it with the kinds of qualities that no one individual could, could embody. So that's an interesting, so um, I think uh, institutions, so let me separate institutions from entrepreneurial ventures like you described, right? Because entrepreneurial ventures like you described are, are uh, instantiations of a person's vision that may have merit in society at large. If it does, it should sustain, and that person should have been building so it could sustain after. Now let me go to institutions. I think something becomes an institution when its sheer existence makes us better because it's here, right? Um, and I think those are rare and they're important in human existence, and Duke is one of those. Uh, I think the requirement of a leader of an institution like that is, is to always work to make it better at doing that than it was before they got here, right? The, the problem with institutions of that form is built into them is, this, is a mechanism that sort of causes us to sort of become mere shadows of the intention of the institution, right? I mean, sort of, the, if you study um, uh, great religious organizations, they all got to some point, almost all got to some point in their history where they were a mockery of themselves because they, because they actually institutized the power structure or the authority relations or, the, or uh, the trappings rather than the intent of the institution in the first instance, right? Duke does that too. We all do that, right? And that's part of how we get separated from the society we're part of, that we're more focused on 
on, on the appearances of the institution rather than the institution in its fundamental sense. Mm -hmm. The job of a leader in a place like Duke is to make sure that Duke is a place that meets the following criterion. Because it's here, we are all better. And the story there. Now, it, it, with its educational mission and research mission at the core of what it does, but, um, and I think that's a very hard standard, by the way. Mm. But if you're unwilling to take it, don't lead here. Mm. And, and so the question of, are we part of Durham well, actually doesn't pass it. The, the observation I think we both agreed on, which is that we could do better by Durham than we're presently doing, we're failing that test. Because Durham is better off, but not as much better off as it should be because Duke is here. And that's one of the tests for me. I'm going to just ask Blair one more question, and then I'm going to ask you to take my job, and you ask the questions <coughs> for a while. So, so make sure you've 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 got them lined up. Um, how how does one avoid, if one's an in a university with international ambitions or vision, shall we say, uh, how does one avoid making the planners mistakes? that you referred to from the White Man's Burdens, Burden book. Um, how does one avoid making those mistakes oneself? How does one, in that sense, become a university of consequence? It's a really great question. So, so um, I thought you were going to ask a different question, which is how do you avoid ignoring your hometown, right? Um, I think part of what you have to remember is that you can't be great if you're not great at home, right? I mean, it's, um, uh, uh, but two answers to that question. First is, Three answers, humility. That even though there are things you know and you're really good at, you can't presume that those work. Right? You can start with that as a hypothesis, but you have to be humble enough to realize the ways in which they don't. Right? Um, second is uh, experiments rather than grand innovations. Right? So, so, um, you know, we have a structural proposition at Fuqua, which is which people would say is a grand innovation, but it's actually a composition of a bunch of experiments. Right? The proposition is someone needs to build a, a legitimately global business school, but when you ask what is that composed of, it's a thousand little things. It's not one big thing, right? Um, uh, and, um, and and I think that gets lost, by the way. What happens is people say, well, if, if cross-continent works, so too the strategy. That's just wrong, right? And then the third is strategic generosity. Right, that um, you have to be willing to give things up that matter to you so those you're trying to, gate, to uh, engage get more for themselves. Right? Um, because what that forces you to do is actually pose the question, what is it that the partner I'm working with or the entity I'm engaged with really, really, really wants? If, if, if you begin with kind of quid pro quo as your assertion, you actually never permit yourself to understand what it is they really, really, really want. If you start with, I'm going to actually meet whatever it is you need. I'm going to be helpful however I can be helpful, but in a way that is humble, right? So it's got to be humble. And in a way that doesn't start with a grand plan, but doesn't experiment here, experiment, experiment there, um, then, then you're more likely to listen well. It's about, to your point, it's about listening to some degree. And I think I just described three ways in which you're more likely to listen. Sure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm looking for a forest of hands now. Now we've had a chance to listen in. Are there any anybody that'd like to participate in the conversation? Oh, great. 
thank you both. I think this has been a very engaging conversation. One one of the things that I've been grappling with, I, I've worked both kind of in the business and nonprofit sectors, but taking from the tradition of, of churches uh, and, the, and the kind of virtue of charity, how do we move beyond charity in the sense of it's a, it's a great virtue, but virtue doesn't necessarily solve problems. How do we move beyond that impulse and even in inculcating that in business students and charity and generosity, but actually getting toward real problem solving in these in these sectors and hopefully more business students engaged in that? I guess is and is it right to move beyond it? You first, or uh, you go first. So so. Um, yeah, I think the, the reason it's right is that charity allows you to remain at arm's length to the issue, right? Um, that that if, if our job is to create consequential people, you don't say, by the way, I made a lot of money, now it's yours, I'm out of here, right? Um, it's, it's, which is really sort of where the first part of this conversation was going. Um, and I think, therefore, uh, what you have to do is, is start by saying, I'm going to create good diagnosticians who actually can listen, hear, understand, and work with. I have to create people who can, who can um, create sort of teams and clusters of individuals who are willing to work against issues rather than do it on their own because they'll never have the capability on their own. And then I'm going to have to create people who have sort of sales and entrepreneurial capability to sort of make it happen but are willing to sort of rigidly reject the first proposition because whatever you do first is always wrong, right? Um, and, and therefore have the ability to sort of test themselves against some really difficult criterion and come back. If you create that kind of person, you create that person and you make sure they remain connected to their dreams and the things they care about deeply, the net result is they will just do it because they do it. it, it, it the business and life won't be as separated as implied by some of this conversation. What, what worries me is we have a model that says business is business and life is life, and the two shouldn't meet. I just think graduating a student who believes that is a real tragedy, just an absolute tragedy. Um, I tend to talk about three categories, uh, working for, working with, and being with. Uh, the working for model is the professional model where I have all the resources and all the answers and you have all the need and all the problems. Uh, I work really hard for you. Uh, I, I keep you at arm's length, to use Blair's expression. And I go home at night and I wonder why you never say thank you. Well, I never say, you never say thank you because I've just reinforced our inequality. Uh, and I've, I've just told, told you and the world that you're poor. Uh, why, why would you be pleased to know that? Um, working with doesn't give up one's own professional skills, but it puts them round a table, which I'm not necessarily chairing. Um, and, and everybody brings the table their, their different resources and works on a problem together. So everybody gets the satisfaction of solving the problem that only I would get if, through the charitable model. Um, being with is more demanding. It means me giving up my professional roles and experience and accomplishments and actually um, coming alongside somebody uh, and moving at their pace entirely. Uh, without, uh, and it, it even means giving up a particularly uh, privileged take on the outcome. Uh, that's not for everybody, clearly. But if, there is, but if there is not an element of that, if you're not saying to somebody, I am with you just because actually I, I enjoy being with you, I enjoy you for your own sake, uh, if, you're not, if there's no element of that whatsoever, 
there's no reason why that person should feel empowered and there's no real reason why that person should trust you. So it, it seems to me beyond charity means going beyond just working for uh, and, and moving into to working with and being with relationships. That means moving house in some cases. That means you know, living in a different part of town than you would otherwise perhaps do in order you know, to, to change this arm's length dimension. But uh, it, it doesn't mean a, you know, a complete renunciation necessarily for everybody in a, in, into a being with model. Um, but but it, it, does, it does mean enjoying people for their own sake rather than treating them as something that you use in order to produce the right statistics at the end. You get a similar, I mean, you get a similar, similar dynamic in evangelism for, for, for Christians, I suppose. Those who want converts <laughs> and those who want to make friends uh, because they really believe that they will see God in the, other, in the stranger. Uh, it seems to me those who want converts are unlikely to be trusted over the long term because they really see you as a statistic. Uh, so beyond charity is friendship. So uh, on that point, that one of the most thoughtful books I've read in the last year is Amadia Sen's book, uh, Identity and Conflict. I think one of the points he raises is that if you, if you have a singular identity, the net result is you would consider yourself different from others. If you allow yourself multiple identities, you'll find points of connection with everybody. Um, and that, in a sense, part of the issue in charity is that I identify myself as separate from you because I have the identity as the giver, right, or whatever the identity is. And, and, it, and it permits me to be sort of imperialistically superior, and I just find that a hard stance. Question for Dean Shepherd. Um, I'm very interested in this uh, change that you described in one of the earlier discussions of how your students are making their career decisions and the factors that they synthesize. I'm curious, A, how you measure that, and B, how it impacts the product you offer. So, so I gave you the empirical answer, right, which is actually the number of students who are the club students go to in the careers they pursue after they graduate, right? So um, we had no students pursuing social entrepreneurial occupations eight years ago. We now have dozens, right? One of the consequences for us is that we declined in the FT rankings because our starting salaries are low. Um, I care less, by the way. Um, um, I care, I, I mean, I care about how we're ranked in ways that matter. Right, um, that isn't one of them. But um, I do think that, now, what, what what's important though is that we're actually a school that wants to permit students to pursue the aspiration they set for themselves rather than us impose on them. So the last thing in the world I wanna do is say every one of our students needs to be a social entrepreneur. That would be as bad as saying every one of our students should be an investment banker. They're both wrong, right? And therefore we have to create an experience that allows a person to be a fantastic investment banker or a fantastic social entrepreneur. I think the things that I hope happen to a Fuqua student that are different from other schools is that the, no matter what the occupation you go into, you're actually better, that, that what you do over life is better connected to the things you care about most than what happened in other schools, right? Um, and, uh, and I think it is actually a cornerstone. When you talk to people who talk to our alumni, they, they use a funny phrase where they sort of say they're just nicer people. And, and, 
And part of what they mean by that is they're more centered around the things they actually, they actually, they work in a way that's more connected to who they are as a human being, right, in a more fundamental sense. Um, it, but empirically, it would be the nature of the f organizations they went to work for as they graduate. Um, I think what we're doing that's different in the curriculum is we're actually trying to create a curriculum that resolves three paradoxes. Right? The first paradox is how can you be a member of and a leader at the same time? The second paradox, and, and, and member of in a very fundamental sense, not a, not so. The second paradox is how can you be really, really, really good at the thing we've made you really, really, really good at, but actually have a general understanding of the world and a general understanding of how business works, right? And third, how can you be the sort of smart student that Duke would be proud of graduating and someone who is comfortable in all locations, who's real, right? If, if we focus what we do in, the, in all of the experiences, the 24-7 portion of what we do as a school, then, and, we, and we work against those three things, I think the consequence is that the kind of student we want to graduate is more likely to have those, is, is more likely to be aligned with what I was describing. And it turns out, when you espouse that, students come who match that, right? And so you've actually seen a shift in the student body in the last three years in the school because we've been more articulate about that. So, I mean, the point I was trying to make is I don't find that dichotomy useful, right? I mean, and, and I, don't, I don't mean to be, I don't mean to skirt the question, I'll answer the question, but I want to highlight an important point, right? I'm, I'm United Church of Canada, which means I was a third Methodist, a third Baptist, a third Presbyterian, so I'm entirely confused about who I am. All I know is I protested, right? That's all I know. <laughs> um, uh, but the portion of me that is Presbyterian, right, actually believes that business and social should be the same thing. They shouldn't be separated. And the separation is, an art, is, is actually an artifice that's a result of some of the assumptions we made in order to develop the models we created and teach the courses we created, that we never should have permitted that artifice in the first place. That, that, that business should have a constructive side to it in terms of what it does for society. I mean, that's, you know, I, it's, it's the, I don't know, um, three-sixths of me, which is Scottish, that actually believes that, I guess. Um, and, and it believes it devoutly. I mean, the Presbyterian side really had a large influence in my life, right? Um, and, and I think we've lost something when we've actually allowed that dichotomy to become a dichotomy, right? By sort of saying, and so when I say things like, if you're going to create a business that matters, create a business in a way that you're proud of, Right? Um, ask yourself the question, why does society permit this legal fiction to exist? Because all firms are legal fictions and society can take them away instantaneously. And, and so what is it you're doing that's, that is of value to society? And therefore, what is your social purpose, not just what is your business purpose, right? So I think the dichotomy is an artifice. And it bothers me that, it's an, that we've permitted it to be so. That said, um, 
the benefit, a mistake that many people make in business is to not ask that question, right? So, so, so we, have, we have as a criterion we use in business school, which is are you maximizing shareholder value? And to a degree, it's the criterion we emphasize exclusive of all others. I think the mistake of that in every business is that there's at least one other criterion that exists, which is why does society permit you to be here in the first place? Because you can get struck down as a business instantaneously if society chooses to do so. And therefore, there is a raison d'etre to your being here as a business entity, right? I, I think one of the, th the first thing that we would learn in business from a social perspective is to pose the question, what is our raison d'etre more often? And you would find we wouldn't do some stupid stuff, right? So insurance companies wouldn't do some things they shouldn't do as insurance companies, right? Um, uh, accounting firms would actually say our job is to preserve trust in the marketplace. Now, that's a social good. It's not a business good. It's a social good, right? Trust in the marketplace. Um, but, you know, it turns out Arthur Anderson forgot that in Houston. And because they forgot that, we actually, the world is much worse off. Right? There's a whole series of banks that sort of forgot their raison d'etre, and because they forgot their raison d'etre, the world is much worse off. And so I think it would be that kind of reflection on, so why am I here, that we would learn first order. Right? And then the second one, I think, is um, a couple things we alluded to today, which is multiple identities and strategic generosity inclusiveness. Um, so I'm recently arrived at Fuqua, and one of the things that really strikes me is just the the incredible potential that lives on campus and within the community that is that is Duke. And more and more, I you know, Larry, the question is creating leaders of consequence as opposed to leveraging that network of leaders to coalesce around the issues that really matter. In so there's, there's this, I, I hear a kind of almost transactional component of they come in, they go through a program, we create leaders of consequence, <coughs> right? And, and the transaction is fulfilled to a certain extent. But then I look on the other side and you say, wow, at, at Fuqua over the last, and I'm not sure if I got all the, the statistics right, but I've heard our, our, our alumni base has doubled in the last six or seven years. And that all around the globe, there's 14,000 or so leaders of consequence we have created. And if we, if we were to reframe our position to say what we have is a network of leaders of consequence who have ingrained in them, by virtue of having been through here, some of that you know, social sense. Could we think differently about how we tap into that network in, in unique ways to bring the community that is Fuqua already embedded around the world to bear on some of these issues in, in, in creative ways? Is that, is that a useful way of framing? So I'm sorry for disagreeing with everyone's question today. Um, uh, and so there's a, there's a premise in the question I just want to be very careful we don't engage in. It is not my job to tell someone else what they should care about. It's my job to connect them to what they care about in an educational process. Right? And so one of the dangers of saying, 
um, because because we're educators. I mean, let's. I mean, in a sense, there are there are people whose job is to tell you what you should care about, right? But 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 educators isn't one of them. Um, parents, right? Um, yes. And, uh, and 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 so my my job is just simply is to make sure that you actually are as connected to those things that matter to you as you can. So to, so in a sense, it's to create a safe place that allows you to contemplate things you wouldn't contemplate because the places you were at weren't safe, but then have you engage in the risk associated with that contemplation and be there to help you as much as you need, but no more, right? That's a virtually impossible task, but I think that's our job, right? And, and so um, the premise is, the premise of the question that worries me a little bit is that it presumes I know better than you what it is you should care about, right? I don't. Now that said, having sort of helped people get more effective in life in whatever way we did through, and, and if you, uh, so, so let me take two parts, of the, two parts of the premise I do agree with and then come back to the answer. First one is I think actually we don't have a relationship with two years, we have a relationship with life. So once you've come here, you don't ever leave the pupil community or the do community, right? You're, you're now part of us, too bad, right? Um, uh, and, and therefore we have an obligation associated with that, which is one part of what you're describing. The second is that no one, in the nature of the problems we're trying to grapple with today, no one person can do it. Right? If you start with those two premises, clearly enabling that is a good thing. Um, forcing it is a bad thing. I think it's probably be the last one. Uh, let's see, you had said before that you thought one of the ways of addressing the white man's burden problem and problems in general uh, is for the business community and for uh, Duke. I'm not putting this right. You said humility and generosity uh, were important. And I'm just wondering how you institutionalize those since you are an institution as opposed to just saying each of us as people should be should be humble and generous but as an institution how are you responsible for those two things um, so so this was in response to the question about how does FUCO achieve its global aspirations and not engage in the same mistakes right um, I think the institutional piece is that we have a series of partnerships that we're a part of, and it's how you engage those partners. Right, so um, let me try to give you an example, um, make it come to life. Uh, our partner in Russia is Graduate School of Management St. Petersburg University State, right, St. Petersburg State University. Um, it's, it has aspirations to actually help um, uh, Russia in two fundamental ways. First is create a class of business people who can run the institutions that aren't being run very effectively now. And, and by effective they mean honestly, candidly, um, in ways where a deal is a deal. I mean essentially help institutes kind of, some kind of notion of rule of law and, and, and business practice. The second is there's a problem in Russia which is unique to Russia in some ways where they have tiny, tiny, tiny organizations and huge firms which are being, the huge firms are being supported largely by government influence and, and control over resources, huge resource base like oil and forestry and aluminum. 
um, and then tiny, tiny organizations, but they have nothing in between. And if they have nothing in between, all sorts of bad stuff happens, right? So um, you don't get a good school system, um, you don't get distribution of wealth, you get, there are a whole bunch of things that are really, really very bad. Now, I don't know how to, so we, we have some stuff we know about that kind of problem, but we don't know Russia, we don't know how it got to where it is, we don't know what people's aspirations are, we don't know what Putin's trying to do, right, for example, they do. Um, and so it's our job to say, in what ways are the assets of Duke useful to what you're trying to achieve? And they've come back and said some really interesting things. Um, help us create a doctoral program because we're actually not turning out um, faculty that are any good in business schools in Russia. Help us create a doctoral program. And we said, okay, fine, we can do that. And I said, and by the way, here are the constraints. Right? And we said those constraints are really stupid, right? which is actually evidence of lack of humility and then realized in lack of contextualization. But then when we stepped back and said, okay, let's take you on your terms, it became a wonderful dialogue about what it looks like. Right? Uh, and I can give you a bunch of examples. And so, but the, the thing we have to continue to remind ourselves is uh, graduate school management's challenges, graduate school management's context, graduate school management's resources, Russia's the country they're in, and our job is to be as good a partner as we can possibly be. Now there's things we need to get out of it, but you know what's interesting? When we pushed for those at the first instance, it was a fight. When we stepped back and said, how do we make you successful in the ways you're trying to be successful? How do we help you be successful in the ways you're trying to be successful? It stops being a fight. Right? And, um, and, and it's really fun, right? You actually think about business problems the way you never did before because actually they're because the, the faculty there are framing problems in a different way from the way we're framing problems. So it enriches our own hypotheses, our own way of approaching the world. Our students, uh, I mean, uh, their students are actually very different from ours. And so when you actually take that, this graduate school management student on their terms, you just learn a lot because it's a novel experience for you that you hadn't seen before. So, so, so it, at the institutional level, it's the way we approach the partnership, and then it becomes a person at a time, to your point, that, that um, it gets executed a person at a time, but it's the way we approach the partnership. Does that make sense? All right, I, th I think we've reached the end of our time. I want to thank you all for coming, and let's express our appreciation to Dean Shepard and Dean Wells. Now, obviously, we hope that this is the beginning of the conversation and not the end. And our next series of Dean's Dialogues is with the Duke School of Medicine, and that's on Tuesday, January 20th at 5.15, because the medical school has its own schedule. So it's at 5.15 to 6.15, and we'll have pizza starting at about 5 o'clock. It's room 3031, Purple Zone, Duke South, and good luck getting there. Okay, we'll, we'll publicize it as well. Take some pizza on your way out, and thanks for coming. <laughs>